Gary DePaul with Unlabeled Leadership. Welcome to episode 76, David Wheatley Finds Leadership While Sailing in the Atlantic. Here's a shout out to listeners in Egypt, Colombia, Kingston, Jamaica, Tokyo, Japan, and in the United States in New Mexico, Albuquerque, and Rio Rancho. With that, let's get started. I can say with confidence that this is the first guest who is a former Scotland Yard police officer. David Wheatley, he is a leadership coach, facilitator, trainer, and at the organization Energy, he is a principal and he is the host of their podcast entitled Energy Leadership Podcast. Part 1. Learning the Platinum Rule Some of my guests in the past have talked about something called the Platinum Rule. This rule, it pretty much goes like this. Treat others the way they would like to be treated, rather than the Golden Rule. Treat others the way you would like to be treated. Following the Platinum Rule helps us with one of the leadership principles, which is entitled, Connect with Others. If you're going to treat people the way that they would like to be treated, you need to find out how they would like to be treated. And in the process of doing that, you form a connection with those people. In this story, David shares how he connected with a couple of clients. Here's David to explain. My story, as I was thinking about it, comes from about six years ago in some of the work that I was doing with a a local family business where that's owned by father and son, and I was coaching son. One of the challenges that he got in some feedback was his lack of visibility in the manufacturing plant, the assembly plant that he had. I don't know whether you have the same kind of tool bag I have where you think, hey, this has worked before, so I'll dig into my tool bag and pull one out. But the thing I pulled out was to say, stop parking your car out front by the admin building and start parking out the back. And that will at least twice a day force you to walk through the plant. And he said, great idea. I like that. And so I went away, a satisfied client, I thought that month. And then I came back the following month to meet with him again. And I noticed his car was outside the front by the admin building. I went in and I walked down to his office and and said, so so that didn't work then. And he said, oh yeah, my dad wants to talk to you. Hmm. And I thought, oh, that's that's a surprise. So I wandered back down the corridor and knocked on dad's door. The moment dad opened the door, he said, Wheatley, yes, I've got a bone to pick with you. Uh, Nobody tells my son to park out the back of my building. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. When I tell this story to other people, what I find at this point is uh, they have a perspective about dad. They've already gotten, they're already formulating what dad is like in in their minds. You know, I try to, to practice the tools that we share with people. And so I went into full listening and understanding mode and said, hey, you'll have to help me understand I understand that a little better. I'm, I'm all ears. And he then went on to tell me that when he was growing up in Louisiana, people had told him he had to use the back door of a number of buildings and he couldn't go in the front door. And now he had his own building with his own name on the front. Nobody was going to tell him or his son that they had to go in the back door. Ah, And that's what normally happens when I share that with people. And that's exactly what happened with me at the time was this revelation because, you know, I'm a six foot one white guy from England. Uh, I have every privilege that's out there going. And I just did not read this whatsoever. Understanding from the dad in this situation that I need to think about the people I'm working with in a broader sense as to what the impact of any suggestion I may have was humbling for me. 
it knocked my normally fairly confident self down a little bit that said, okay, I need to be more vulnerable. I need to understand. And both dad and son, I've had some excellent conversations with since about what it's like in their world, how that is, how they operate. But it, it's always fun to see people when I tell that story's reaction, which is exactly the same as mine was, which goes from what a jerk to, oh, <laughs> as you suddenly realize what had gone on in that person's life. I found it confusing. Then I was hearing this and I was wondering, what, what, is it, what is this person's background? And a lot of times our unconscious bias pictures a plant owner and a plant owner's son. Exactly. If you're a white person, maybe you think this is a white person. Maybe, you know, maybe this is, uh, you know, don't even know what, if this is Asian or, or black or, you know, just, but we have these preconceived notions and visions in our heads that play these tapes when we hear something like that. When something is incongruent with our philosophy, our beliefs, our, our tapes, you know, it just, it causes confusion. Yeah. And I, I purposely left that piece of information out for you to do that. And I was facing that information and still was equally as confused until he dropped that line on me. And I had the aha moment, which unlocked another level of thinking for me. The interesting thing was some of the conversations afterwards involved how son could get grandson to understand that because grandson had had somewhat more of a privileged upbringing than dad had. So he wanted to make sure that grandson understood the reasons why that was a good choice as, as well. So because the name's on the front of the building, nobody's going to make anybody walk in the back door. Because of that experience, that actually strengthened your relationship with the father and the son. <laughs> it, I think it did. Actually, the, the son in this scenario and I talked some more and I was coaching about four black leaders at the time. And we actually got a group together that would meet for a coffee once a month on a Friday morning because I found that they were looking for a peer network. I said, if I facilitate this and I arrange it and get it happening, can I come and sit and listen and learn? And they said, absolutely. And, and they educated me, me repeatedly on what I was missing in my history because of who I am and how I grew up and where I grew up. And, and that was enlightening. And I think that only happened because I suddenly switched off my I know everything to I don't understand anything and was open to listening and understanding this new perspective. Part two, Crossing the Atlantic. In previous episodes, I described leadership as helping other people develop mentally and morally, and put another way, helping them develop character. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about other people and helping them step up, develop, grow, and make a difference in the world. Leadership can happen at the macro level and the micro level. It could be with a CEO leading an organization in a particular way. Or it could be just something that happens in a moment between two people. David shares a story about an adventure that he was on. And in this story, he describes how someone was able to lead another person. Here's David. Uh, this story actually goes back uh, about six years now. In my early days, I, I taught whitewater kayaking and sailing at adventure centers when I was a, a teenager and in my youth. I always said that one of my bucket list ideas when I moved to America was one day I would love to sail home. I never really thought much of that, but when anybody said, what's your bucket list look like? That was the one thing that I would have on it. And in 2014, an old friend of mine called and said uh, he'd just bought a boat in the Caribbean. He'd retired from the Metropolitan Police in England and was going to sail it home the following spring. I said, well, I'm up for being a crew if you need it. My bucket list uh, is coming earlier than expected, but I'll crew. 
when I got home, I told Lorna, my wife of 30 years now, that I just volunteered to crew this boat. And she said, not without me, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the interesting thing there is I taught sailing and I'd worked with Keith, who was the skipper of this boat in a, the same adventure center. And we'd lived together in a previous uh, um, job. And so he, we knew we could get on together. Launda had never been on a boat in her life until she stepped onto the Ruby May to sail the Atlantic. And she stepped on there with three other crew members. There was Keith, the skipper, me, her husband of the time, 25 years, 24 years, and Tony, who was another person who'd worked in the same adventure center some 30 odd years ago. The fascinating thing from this, to spend seven weeks on a 39-foot boat, uh, mostly with nothing else in sight, to sail from uh, the British Virgin Islands uh, up around Bermuda and out to the southern coast of Ireland, was quite a, an experience of everything that I've been teaching for 20 years, of leadership and teamwork. And the person that I always focus this on is Launda, my wife, because she knew nothing. And she was surrounded by three very different stereotypical males. Because in, in me, she had the husband that always wants to fix things. Let me take care of that for you. Let me do that because that's just the way we are, isn't it? Yeah. And then Tony was a very typical English kind of British officer type who could talk a good game, but you never were quite sure whether it was all talk or it could actually be backed by uh, capability. And then Keith, the skipper, is the consummate teacher. And watching him and his leadership on this seven-week trip was just a phenomenal experience for me as well, because he was so patient with Launda that we could go around in circles in the tender for weeks so that she could get the hang of how to drive it. And he was so patient with her experiencing it and not getting in the way, keeping the rest of us out of the way. So don't listen to Tony and don't listen to <laughs> David because Tony might not know what he's on about and David just wants to fix it for you. You've got to experience it. Now, he would never rush you. He'd be have that patience. Whereas Tony would say, oh, you've got to feel the wind. And Londa would say, but I don't know what that means. And he would say, well, just feel the wind. And I'd say, well, let me just do it for you. But it was Keith that stood out because he was the one that said, no, you need to do it and you will get it right. And I trust that you'll do it. And it's not going to be perfect straight away, but you need to experience it and do it and find it out for yourself. There's a picture of her that I, I have as we were about a week out of Ireland. She just has this confident, beaming, big smile as she's on the helm of this boat. And her journey throughout that seven weeks was uh, masterful at the hands of what I would call a consummate teacher, somebody who didn't get in the way, let them learn, let them experience it, and kept guiding in the right direction rather than trying to fix or just telling people what to do. That story reminds me of, or has me thinking about, is when people hire new talent in corporations or businesses, and the tendency is to find the person who is the most qualified, most experienced that would make sense for the particular role. And I've always found for me personally, and I come from a talent development background, I tend to hire instructional designers who were newly out of college, may have a master's degree, but not seasoned. It just seemed that it gives that person a huge opportunity to grow and develop and offer their own perspective and unique contributions. I, I would agree. I think it has loads of corollaries back to the workplace and, and with leaders and how leaders are. The uh, epitome in my mind that we talked on the, the trip about how maybe we can write this story and sell it and make a movie out of this story and things like that. And, and we were on the plane on the way home and we were looking down at the Atlantic Ocean beneath us and thinking about how many uh, days it took us to cover how many minutes that we'd just flown over. 
I'm talking about this movie and uh, this movie idea and saying, hey, wouldn't it be cool if that was just what made us famous is Launda's story about how she took on sailing with these three idiots on this boat and how she managed through it. And I said, maybe that will be the thing that makes us rich and famous. And, and maybe then I'll just follow you around the world and carry your bags. And she turned to me and said, I don't need anyone to carry my bags. There you go. And that was the epitome of this adventure for her, which had been such an empowering experience. But it was at the hands of the consummate teacher who was very knowledgeable, very skillful, could do everything himself, but understood the power in letting her experience it and letting her get used to what it was that she needed to be doing. It's taking someone who may not be competent at doing a particular set of skills, but they're competent enough that with instruction they can, and you're building their competence and their confidence to be able to do that kind of work. And it sounds like by the time you guys have landed sheets, your, your wife has completely changed and developed and became very independent. She was independent and strong and uh, before, but but it, it uh, certainly grew as she went on the trip. And just to um, highlight that in the middle of the Atlantic, at one point, she took over the, the galley and the kitchen detail because she's you know, very talented in the kitchen. And uh, we're in the middle of the Atlantic with hardly any resources other than the tins of salmon and stuff that we'd bought before we came. And somebody said, I fancy pizza. We were up on deck and two hours later out came these personal pan pizzas that Laundra had made and we had no flour on board. Holy cow. So we have no idea where she got, I think she got it from Bisquick or something like that, that she got some some pancake mix and made. And the three of us up on deck would tell you that's the best pizza we've ever eaten. That's fantastic. To rustle it up in the middle of the Atlantic and just with this beaming, confident smile that came from having this teacher that was willing to give you the space and encouragement. And, and I think sometimes we all need to reflect and remind ourselves to be a bit more like Keith. And let people contribute however, however they can. Exactly. Part three, pay attention and learn. In my book, Nine Practices of 21st Century Leadership, I share nine different practices on how to lead, including number seven, facing the unknown like lions. Much of this practice is about listening and gathering feedback. And what you're about to hear from David aligns with this. Listening is something that's highly misunderstood. And often when we listen, we don't always pay attention. David shares some advice which can help you with this. Again, here's David. If I take the two stories that we've shared today, I was trying to think of what's the core to those two stories and advice that I would give on a most regular basis to my clients. And there's a couple of things that come up. And the first one is be such an active listener. Are you paying attention to what's actually happening and what people are saying and what they're doing? And if you think in the first story, if I hadn't have switched on my listening ears, it could have been a horrible scenario. And even in the second story on the boat, we all had to listen and pay attention to what was going on. But then the second part of listening in my mind is rather than digging straight into solving the problem or fixing things, is to ask what I would call a powerful question. And a powerful question is one that opens up other people's thinking. I just define it with, it can't be answered yes or no, and it's not advice disguised as a question, but it's a question that opens up other people. And if you do that and you can ask a question, you actually see the other person start to think. And that's a magical moment as a leader or as a parent or wherever world you're in. When you ask the right question and you see the other person's cogs start whirring, that's magic. And then the third thing, which I learned from a, a friend of mine, Margie Hageny, there's research that says, once I've asked the question, I should stop and count to 10. 
because most people's th good thinking doesn't kick in till seven seconds after the question. And yet our temptation as leaders is very easily to, to get to three seconds of silence and then start to answer that question or ask another question that takes the conversation back to us rather than giving the, the learner or the follower the opportunity to engage that thinking and come back with a response. That resonates well with me because it just reminds me how uncomfortable people are with silences. You know, it's a shame that when we feel that way and we have to fill the void that we miss out on an, an opportunity for the other person to give them time to think and respond to the powerful question. Yeah. And I love a, a poem by a friend of mine, Judy Brown, who wrote a poem called Fire. And she's she's in leadership development as well. And she talks about the need for the space between the logs. I always think about that when I'm thinking about the listening side, that if all we're doing is talking, that's we're piling logs onto a fire. And when we pile logs onto a fire, we put the fire out. If we put space between the logs and we, we cultivate that space, then we create a roaring fire that will energize us and keep us warm. And I think that's the same for listening. And if we don't give the space, then we can quash that fire quite easily. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. When you started talking about powerful questions, I what reflected in my mind was all the work I've I've done with human resources. And the challenge and why I try to teach people is to use powerful questions to get at the underlying problems and really dig at the intent for the request. So a lot of times people, especially in the learning field, uh, you'll have executives come and they say they want team building training or they want some type of training. And the temptation is to accept that and just do a tactical response and do it. If you pause and you start asking questions about why and dig into it, I think two things happen. One, the asker, the requester, is given the opportunity to reflect a little bit and opens up that person's mind to be receptive to what really is the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know if you've experienced it where you've been asked to come and solve something and you ask a few questions and the person realizes that they don't need you to solve it. Yeah. Because the questions that you've just asked have helped them work out how to solve it. I think that's some of my best business development is when I go in and don't get work because I've helped them solve the problem, but then they recognize the value of coming back to me when they've got the next problem. My thanks to David Wheatley. If you'd like to learn more about David, go to the show notes. And if you have a question or comment, go to unlabelleadership.com, click the message icon, and leave a voicemail message up to one minute. Unlabel Leadership, by the way, is a volunteer service, and your contributions make a difference. And for those who have contributed, thank you. And just for listening, thank you very much for what you do and continuing to support the show. Until next time, lead on.